listening to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. This is a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture. I'm Joseph Henderson, the Media Specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the Media Collection Development Librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the Director of Adult Services. For the first time in the Book Lovers Podcast, we're revisiting an author. When we discussed Lot in July 2020, we were struck by Brian Washington's ability to convey urban life in Houston so deftly. So in preparation for summer reading and our adult summer reading kickoff with the author himself, we're reading and discussing Washington's novel Memorial. Memorial centers around Benson and Mike, a couple in Houston who are pretty much definitely at the end of their relationship. A wrench is thrown into their lives when Mike finds out his dad is dying of cancer and he leaves for Japan just as his mother arrives to visit. She is left to live with Benson, who has never met her before, and everyone struggles to adjust. We're digging into the idea of home, the essence of change, and most importantly, how weird it is to cook in someone else's kitchen. Let's get started. Jess, I wonder if you could walk us through why we are revisiting Brian Washington today on the show and specifically why we're going to be talking about his first novel, Memorial. Sure. I I will say, for those of you who have listened to our episode about Lot and Sports as Hell, uh, I have a deep connection to the book Lot. And it is one that has stuck with me over the last year since I've read it. I really, really enjoyed it just from a personal perspective, from a short story perspective, from a I grew up in an urban place that's a lot like Houston perspective. So it was very relatable for me. And it stuck with me from last year all the way up to now. And I, as the director of adult services here at SCPL, I, one of the things I do is book author events. And even though COVID has happened and we're not meeting in person, we are doing virtual author events. Uh, People keep writing books and they keep putting them out. So we will keep supporting those authors. And Brian Washington came out with his first novel, Memorial, um, last year. And I was really interested in expanding our author programming to support LGBTQ authors. It's something that we haven't really done and made very clear in the past. And I thought Brian Washington would be a great place to start because he writes about urban life so well. And he writes about LGBTQ life so well. And... I just like I had such a deep connection to Lot. It was a little selfish of me to reach out and be like, "Hey, could we get Brian Washington?" But then we could, <laughs> and he's he's actually um, we are having him for a virtual author event on June third. So check out our website SpartanburgLibraries.org to sign up. But we are going to be discussing Memorial. I will be moderating the event and talking with Brian about his writing process. And I really wanted us to do a podcast episode about it too before the event so that people could 
think a little bit more critically about the book and about Brian's writing and what Memorial is about. And I wonder if um, I wonder if there's a way that we could also uh, maybe begin this conversation about Memorial and tie it into another um, upcoming event here at the library, which is our uh, summer reading, adult summer reading programming. Do, do, do. Um, because there's a there's a thread that runs through this book that um, that as a fan of food and cooking, I I noticed and was was alert to um, and made hungry and curious by, which is that um, there are numerous scenes in in the novel where food and cooking happens. Uh, it, food is being eaten, etc. But it's <laughs> it's connected in some in some way to characterization, um, to things like memory and uh, to to aspects of relationships as they progress and reveal themselves to one another. Um, so I wonder if we could maybe start off by talking about that a little bit. Yeah, I love that because we've talked about food in books before and we've made a few jokes on an episode arc where we covered food a couple of times that this was turning into a food book podcast. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> And food in this book is very different from the other books where we've talked about food with the story. Because in a lot of other books, food is an immediate bonding, caring kind of a thing. And in this, a lot of the food starts off as a little bit more distant. Even with Mm -hmm. Mike's introduction, he's Japanese-American, and yet he works at a Mexican restaurant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's already like a little bit of a dissonance with how food is portrayed in here. Now, just just to clarify my allusion to adult summer reading the theme this year for adult summer reading is food yeah <laughs> um, <num. laughs> that, this was inadvertent um, yeah it was but, no yeah. it was planned we're very oh, good at our was jobs here <laughs> totally a thousand percent on purpose i swear i read every book in the building and figured out that this was the right one this was the one <laughs> absolutely not please don't ever assume that i've read every book in our library we have patrons who do that and i'm just like how can you think i have the time how no can one I has have that the time? time we have six hundred thousand books in this building um so it was a happy accident. It was a, a very happy accident. And our, yes, our summer reading theme for this year, specifically for adults, is food. Um, a lot of people do summer reading with their libraries when they're kids and when they're teens and they really love it. And I know that this isn't something that every library system does in the country, but we have a really robust summer reading program specifically for grown-ups. And... This year, you can read nine books or read for nine hours, and when you turn in your card that lists your nine books and or nine hours worth of reading, you get a prize. This year's prize is, quite frankly, not that I'm biased or anything because I helped choose it, a really, really dope cutting board that's roughly the size of an iPad, and it's absolutely adorable. It's so cute. It has our library logo on it. It's a bamboo board, so it's a little bit more sustainable. I really love it. Uh, We're giving away weekly prizes as well, which include a really nice apron that Joseph found, a wooden spatula. The apron has our library logo embroidered on it. I mean, it's we're going to be talking about food for virtual staff picks all summer. We're highlighting um, food materials through 
all of our displays and everything like that. It's really like this has been a really fun theme to pull together. And we actually wanted to do it last year and couldn't because of COVID and everything was really short notice for summer reading. But this year we've really embraced it and we're engaging with it and everyone is really loving it. Um, so in reading Memorial and being like, well, this is the author that we chose. It's like a summer reading kickoff. It ended up being a much more... Um, like organic fit than I had mm -hmm. even expected it to be. Like I was excited. Organic. organic <laughs> wink. Um, free range. <laughs> free, free range, happy cows, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it, yeah, it ended up being a really, really good fit for a multitude of reasons. And I'm really happy about that. But I love when we've talked about food in the past on the podcast, it is often in a a setting that is from a reader's advisory perspective a type of book that is trying to get the reader to feel it's usually like we'll see it a lot in romance novels especially um, because food is something that we tend to have a lot of emotion around especially comfort food and people really enjoying what they're eating and it being like this really social and family aspect and in memorial it's treated much differently because a lot of the food is shown as like a partially as like a requirement for living, but also partially the only way that a couple of characters can communicate with each other right. really is by cooking together. And when, when Mike leaves for Osaka and leaves his boyfriend with his mom who, who he's never met. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> So it's like we've got this odd couple situation with a uh, an older Japanese woman and a like late 20-something, early 30-something black man, and they've never met before, and they're living in an apartment together all of a sudden. And in a lot of our, in a lot of the books with food and cooking, that's sort of an immediate bonding between the characters. Right. It's two characters that maybe kind of struggle to connect through the rest of the book. And then they eat a meal together and that's their bonding or they're cooking together. And that's when we can sort of see the start of this relationship as a good, fruitful thing. But here, when Ben and Mitsuku are cooking together, they're both very guarded. Yes. And very, it's almost as if you're like the awkward interloper in the kitchen while they're both in there together. Yeah. And you're, you're watching them from a distance and you're like, yikes, this is bumpy, <laughs> yeah. which how can you not expect it to be when like a mother-in-law figure walks in that you've never met before and you're going to be staying with them for who knows how long. And she's Eek. like, I'm hungry. I'm going to cook mm -hmm. and just like takes over your kitchen. I'd be like, I don't know what to do in this situation. Yeah. It's super awkward. And we see kind of in a way something similar happen with um, Mike and his father, Aiju. And when Mike goes to Osaka and he starts taking care of his dad who is dying of cancer, he, he is the one who cooks. And it's primarily as like a way to care for his dad because he's not sure what else to do. He also helps run his dad's bar. And... It's very much, I even remember this moment where one of the co-workers of his dad's comes into the house and starts making food. And Mike is like, how do you know where everything is? And he says, Japanese kitchens are all set up the same way. And that was a very striking moment because it really, it's like the comparison between Mitsuko barging around <laughs> their kitchen trying to find stuff and just like using whatever she needs to as she finds it versus this very organized, very 
like constructed way of of having a kitchen in Japan and there's just that that very interesting comparison between the two because of the ways that they're trying to use food to deal with what they're going through yeah there's a really great scene of um of Mike and Benson uh cooking together late in the novel for Benson well really for both of their families um for <laughs> for Mitsuko and for Benson's family which is a real moment yeah <laughs> it yeah. happens twice in the book once at the beginning and once <laughs> at the end and it's like these people are so awkward together yeah <laughs> yeah but I love the way that um I love the way that uh Brian Washington writes about um how they're able to cook together in the space and it's sort of it suggests again that level of communication that doesn't need to necessarily happen in words but it also suggests a kind of i don't know a sort of deeper level of understanding of what to do when and how to navigate within the space which is if you've ever cooked with another person and it's gone well you you know how how that works or if you've cooked with another person and it's gone really poorly maybe <laughs> you would read that and say, oh, wow, that's the dream. It's very choreographed, yeah, right? And this is something that I've experienced with my significant other. We're at home. We have an extremely small kitchen, and sometimes right. it goes well, especially when we have a recipe that we've made multiple times. First yeah. time is always a disaster, and right. we're bumping into each other constantly. We can't get out of each other's space. There isn't enough counters. Um, and it it's that... That scenario comes so late in the novel when mm -hmm. Benson and Mike are really recognizing the fact that their relationship is over and they're both kind of moving toward the acceptance of that. Right. But they're still growing as a couple. Mm -hmm. And that is incredible to me that you can see them because I think Benson says that's their first time cooking together because usually mm. he like early in their relationship tries to cook eggs and the fire alarm goes <laughs> off and like mm. it keeps beeping while while Mike is like, I'll handle this right. <laughs> because yes. he's yeah. a chef and he knows yeah. how to cook. So he does like all the cooking for them. Yeah. I wonder, and maybe this is a this could be a question for your discussion uh, or for your your event with uh, author event with Brian Washington. I wonder if he's ever worked in restaurants or sort of been in the restaurant scene um, in in any form, because I do feel like some of the ways in which he writes about food and cooking, at least to me, it it just speaks of a deep knowledge of what he's talking about obviously he knows how to feed himself but <laughs> but uh but i so just do wonder most of us. so do most of us but i wonder i wonder about that because i'm like oh man maybe that's a little a secret uh, portal to his his background a bit i'm um, writing that down right now. <laughs> that's great um so i want to go back a yeah. little bit yeah. because you when you talked about the awkwardness of this that's something that's so easy for authors to try to avoid and it's easy for us to avoid awkward moments. We love to make a joke to sort of break the tension of an awkward moment. But in the very first scene where Mitsuko is cooking, you're forced to just sit in that awkwardness mm -hmm. that she's feeling. And it made me think of times when I've cooked at a friend's house. And I'm doing a lot of that lately. My oven has been out for a while now. And baking, even at my best friend's house, where I'm at her house a lot, I just felt like a completely 
different person. It's an, it's an alien situation. It is. And yeah. it's such a strange spot to be in to feel so uncomfortable and even like almost unwelcome in this kitchen that I've hung out in all the time. I've made food with her in that kitchen. I've watched her make food in that kitchen. I've eaten meals with her there. But there's just something about suddenly being in the kitchen with someone I know and cooking alone that just felt wrong. Well, it's very invasive, right? Yeah. It can feel very invasive and very intimate. You're going through someone's drawers. You're going through cabinets. You're looking for things and trying to find stuff. And you're using things that don't belong to you, yeah. right? Essentially, even if, even if like I, which I have, I've offered you my kitchen. Yeah. I'm like, come <laughs> use my oven. I don't care. It only gets used like three times a week. Please use it. Um, it has a light and everything, which is a delight for me. Um, but it's still like it's the concept of like you don't know where anything is. No. And even when I tell you where it all is, you're still having to open the cabinets and yes. go into a place that normally is not purposely off limits. But when you're a guest in a space and you have the host and the hostess or whoever might be there that's leading the way the kitchen is one of those places that is like their domain. Yes. Right. And I think especially for a chef, because I've also been in the kitchens of chefs and there's weird stuff and weird jars. And <laughs> I ask, you and like I'm a like vinegar mother in the corner. Yeah. Just I'm like, like hanging out. What is this jar with a stick in it? House, and Joseph. the chef was like, Oh, that's my um, vanilla, homemade vanilla syrup. I was like, okay. And it's just odd to do that. And I think for a lot of the characters in this book, we really see the whole book from Ben and Mike's perspective, but we don't really see a lot from Mitsuko's perspective. And I think that's something that, that awkwardness was a, one of our first scenes where we really get to see her. And that was a moment where I felt we were a bit inside of her. Or I was able to connect with her really well because I just experiencing that awkwardness myself very recently. Yeah. And we see, we see that reflected in Benson's family too, when they come over, especially his dad, because like they're talking to Benson, but it's their first time in his apartment. Yeah. And so really they're like asking him questions, but they're like looking around and they're like, what am I, they're taking stock of the space for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And it's that same kind of like invasive, intimate, private space that you're trying to figure out that isn't yours but is related to someone that you know very closely. And so you want, you also want to care for it. Right. And a kitchen is the one place where you have to be like, I can't care for this the way that is optimal because I have to mess it up. Yeah. Like that's the purpose of a kitchen is that we use it to chop and cook and splatter and mix and toss and all of these different things so it's not going to stay as clean as when you came to it and that's really hard for a lot of people to do and I think we see that in her because um, Ben sort of brings it up as this is an odd thing that she did where she took dishes and used them and then immediately washed them dried them and put them back where she got them from yeah. because mm -hmm. that just shows how she's like I can't mess this up not only probably being a very fastidious person herself we sort of get that throughout the book but just this first introduction of I can't mess anything up in here and just being in here is messing things up. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot in this book that isn't just about food. It's also about kitchens and the space in which we cook because there's a lot of, a lot of scenes of Mike in Iju's bar Yes, and cooking in the bar and serving people in the bar and what that's like, which is a completely different setting. And then he's also getting grief from the patrons of the bar, which yes. is a treat. I <laughs> love when Iju is sick. And uh, for the first time when he was out of commission for a couple of weeks at the bar and he wasn't doing any of the cooking. And finally, the regular said, 
we're basically saying, okay, you've been here long enough. You need to do it right. Yeah. We're done giving you a pass. Right. <laughs> and he had been making some specific thing in one way. And finally, after a couple of weeks, they were like, all right, you're doing this wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you're not doing it the way he does it. And Mike is just, I'm never going to do it the way he does it. Right. And then after Iju dies, Mike goes back and he is cooking for everyone. And at one point, they one of the patrons of the bar finally says, this isn't the way Iju would have made it but I can get used to it. So there's a huge difference in like the, the concept of respecting who came up with it versus when that person is no longer there having being forced to accept the change has come. Yeah. And with food that can be really, really hard, right? Like I, as, as a formerly hyper picky eater and as a presently, presently semi picky eater, (laughs) I eat cauliflower. Now I eat blueberries there's a lot of things that I eat now that I used to not at all, right? I used to have mm-hmm. a very, very narrow palate. And it's hard when you're used to something being the exact same over and over and over again. And then suddenly it tastes ever so slightly different because it's manipulated, not just the food itself, but all of your memories and your relationship with that particular food. Yeah. And then in the bar we have with the patrons, we have them not only... Is it different from what they're used to? But after Iju dies, it's a thing of, I'll never be able to have that again. Right. It's so gone every, forever. Every time they're eating this food that is so different from what they're used to, it's a constant reminder yeah. that he's gone and he's never coming back. And that's just a constant grief process for yeah. them. Yeah. It's just so incredible the way he's able to tell such a layered story just with how and when and where people are cooking. Yeah. But it, it makes sense though because I think that one of the other one of the other um, major themes that he is interested in pursuing around food and cooking is getting uh, getting readers to really think about what it means to call a place home and right. how to think about a home. Obviously the you know the this sort of cliched distinction between a house being a home or not being home a home. Is where the heart is. Well, love, laugh, love. Yeah, it's like, well, what is a home? Is a home a place, or you know, or or how do you how do you think about it? I mean, for um, well, for a lot of homes, especially, I feel like with how homes are constructed here, thinking of homes that I've been in over my life, essentially, the kitchen is one of the first things you go into in a lot absolutely. of homes. Even right. if it's not where a main door is, the kitchen is some sort of congregation yes space. what happens anytime yeah. there's a party in anyone's house everyone is in that kitchen everyone always goes to the kitchen always it yeah. is considered quote-unquote the heart of the home and mm-hmm. i think there is even though that's kind of a cheesy cliche there is a lot of truth to it because by its nature we spend so much time in it and we don't have in american homes and in homes in the southern part of america we don't really have the distinction of like the kitchen and the dining room as two completely separate rooms they're either connected in some way or you're eating all the meals in the kitchen or you Mm -hmm. can like see the kitchen from where you're eating the meals it's just very common for our home so it's definitely a huge part of home and being in your home or being in someone else's home and just being comfortable there yeah right There was this really striking quote that I encountered that I found pretty relatable, actually, um, because I'm you both mostly grew up here in the South Carolina. Yes. 
big area and I I grew up in New Jersey and then have lived here roughly roughly half my life in each place and Mm -hmm. so I've been kind of split between the two and there's a great quote from Mike after he arrives in Osaka and he's on his way to his dad's place and it says I left Ben with Ma and I'd left Ma in the middle of nowhere and I hadn't even called my boyfriend at home and home was the only place I wanted to be even if technically I was already there I had already made it I was finally back home And there's something very relatable about that to me because it feels like you're being pulled in multiple places. And a lot of the time we talk about characters not having a home or feeling like we don't have an identity of home. And that's very important to, I think, all of us as humans is that we have a place that we can relate to as a home, whatever that may be. But in Mike's case, it almost feels as though he has too much home. He's got Osaka home where his dad is. He's got Houston home where his mom and Benson are currently trying to figure out their odd couple situation. (laughs) He has his apartment. He has the place where he works. He's got all of these different concepts of home. And what happens is when you have multiple homes like that, it dilutes it to the point where you don't ever feel like you can completely be at home. Yeah. Because even when you're in one, you're being pulled toward the other. Because when we think of home, we think of a place where we are comfortable and relaxed. It's a refuge. And if you just have too many of those, then you can never really be in any of them. Right. Because you're always looking for the refuge of the other one. Right. I've always felt, especially the longer that I've lived in Spartanburg, I feel that constant pull of New Jersey. But then when I'm in New Jersey, I feel the constant pull of Spartanburg. (laughs) Because there's like what I left behind in New Jersey, my friends, some of my family, All of the places that I knew is familiar. The food, (laughs) of course. Um, The humidity. Like, there there are just very specific things that are home to me. And then I come to Spartanburg, and there are very, very different things that are home to me. My horse is here. My parents are here. Um, All of my colleagues, many of my current friends group, like, all of that is here. And so there's this there's this tug of war between the two of them that just is endless because you can't walk away from either one once they're permanently a part of you. And that even like, I think of it as like these two big bubbles of the Venn diagram. And then there's a tiny little bubble in the middle of my four years in Virginia when I was in college. And there's the yank of that and of the barn that I rode at and the horses that I rode and the people I know who still live in DC and Northern Virginia and all of that. And the places that are there that I really loved. And there's like this endless tug of war going on between them. And when you have that, you're never able to feel fully satisfied with the concept of home. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the way that the I think the way that the book presents this particular quandary for Mike in in greatest detail and focus um, is somewhat through his own his own sort of like doubled and contradictory reflections. You know, I wanted to be home, but then I realized I was already at home, etc. Um, but then we also see this. Um, we also see this in some some amount of relief in a in a slightly later passage in the middle section of the book where Mike is talking to Tan, um, another character in the novel, about um, the way that home, our, our ideas of home, 
can be tied to particular places, but just as you were saying, as you were walking out your your own personal geography, more often than not, they're tied uh, to particular people and where those people are. Um, and so there's a it's just a great bit of, of dialogue, and I want to read a little bit of it. Washington writes, I'm sorry, I said. Don't be, said Tan. I'm well. My mother's well. For me, home is wherever she is. You shouldn't make a home out of other people. Is that right? I think so. Speaking from experience, you could say that, I said. Maybe you've met the wrong people, said Tan, or you've met the wrong people for you. Maybe, I said, but people change, and then you're stuck in whatever your idea of home was. There's nothing wrong with that, though, said Tan. We all change. We'll all have plenty of homes in this life, and when you don't, that, there's the issue. That's settling. And what's the difference between that and settling into one person? That's not for me to say. We all live our own lives. Well, I said, thanks for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Burn. Um, And so what is obvious there is one Washington's ear for, for dialogue and uh, the particular way that dialogue functions in, in this novel very naturalistically. But also there's this, there's this sort of rethinking of, of the idea of home and how home attaches and detaches from people and how it's clear that Mike is very much unsettled on this question and how he how he negotiates his complicated relationships with his family and with Benson around this question of right. home and, and I think where it shows a lot in his, I think that shows a lot of his anxieties about a home being a person because he has three people that would be his then he has his father his mother and his boyfriend right and which one is more or less. And I think this might be the first time that he's introduced to the idea of a person will have many homes over their lifetime. Right. Well, I think he also has this narrow idea of what home is even as a physical place, because when he says home, home doesn't change. I think about the Atlantic city I grew up in and the Atlantic city that exists now. Oh yeah. And it is tremendously different, both for better and for worse. And I mean, in terms of like the physical geographic experience, Hurricane Sandy came through there and actually reshaped part of the beaches. Um, There are a number of buildings that were demolished and there are plenty of empty spaces now, but the the cultural landscape of Atlantic City is completely different now than it was. The economy is different. Like all of that changes over time. So home, we, we can think of home as like the house that you live in, but you it's very rare to live in one house for your entire lifetime that is going to, and then you never do anything to it. <laughs> it's going to change. Yep. You're going to need to replace a light bulb at some point. It is going to change. And even in terms of any larger physical space, to think about the state of Texas or the city of Houston, those have both changed even in just the last five years, right. even mm-hmm. in the last year. Everything is constantly changing. To, so to say that like people change and places don't is really a 
maybe misunderstanding of the functionality of place mm-hmm. and what place needs to be for us. Because as we change, places change with us. So it's part of, part of the Anthropocene. Yeah. <laughs> well, like we shape episode. where we live and where we live shapes us. Right. And so as all, as all things, we are both constantly changing and being impacted. Mm-hmm. There's a symbiotic dynamic there where we change our places. They change us and we're forced to change in order to work with them. But they are also, we force upon them change, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this point continues onto the onto the next page as they continue in their conversation and Tan says kind of as a way of buttoning everything up, uh, which leaves Mike with very little to say in response. That loving a person means letting them change when they need to and letting them go when they need to, and that doesn't make them any less of a home. Just maybe not one for you, or only for a season or two, but that doesn't diminish the love. It just changes forms. And so you can see throughout there, Mike struggling with the prospect and the reality of change and Tan trying to remind him of its just perpetual (laughs) existence as a force in your life and, and how it doesn't, how it doesn't undercut or undo any idea that you might have about home and how essential that is to your own self and how you define yourself in relation to your home and how you define your relationships through that. One of the things I really like about Tan and that Washington presents really, really well in this novel is this concept of change and change not being a bad thing because I think, especially with relationships at least in America, we tend to look at the end of a relationship as a bad thing. And we look at the, as a relationship ends, if you haven't gotten what you want out of it in some way as quote unquote wasted time. I've heard a couple of friends of mine mention that about like divorces or whatever, that someone has wasted their time on this person. And Washington does a really great job presenting this idea, especially from Tan that change, end of a relationship, moving, anything like that is not necessarily a bad thing or a wasted time. It's just an additional season of your life. Mm-hmm. That's just part of where you are. And um, maybe you just, you rent the house instead of buying it. And even if you buy it, maybe eventually you sell it. And that goes for relationships as well. Maybe you date for two years. Maybe you're together for seven Maybe you get married and then eventually divorce. That's not necessarily failure. That's just the shifting of people and the shifting of life. And um, Ben's sister, Lydia, who I love, she's a great character. She is a great character. There's a point very late in the novel where she and Benson are talking and they're talking about Ben deciding to break up with Mike when Mike returns home and... He's like, I don't know about this. It seems like a bad idea. And Lydia says, everything changes. Change isn't good or bad. It's just change. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can, in some ways, be a really revolutionary concept. It's something that I believe. I don't think that my, I don't accept that my relationship is just going to be what it is until I die, (laughs) necessarily. Um, It's going to change. It might end. I don't know. But I don't go into it with the expectation that I'm going to be with this person until the end of my life or until the end of his. And 
I think that's that can be a revolutionary concept because we've always said like birth, marriage, babies, especially for women. And to hear a woman in a book present this idea that change is what it is as opposed to the end of a relationship not being bad is a really great concept, I think, to share. Well, we have another we have another passage along the same lines um, very late in the novel where um, Mitsuko says to to Benson, you'll be fine. You'll figure this out. It's not a waste is what I'm saying. There are no wastes. Either nothing is a waste or everything is a waste. (laughs) But you two could do worse than each other than being in each other's lives. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, But again, that sense that that sense that some strange form of value and valuing creeps in to relationships around constant improvement or constant progress or something like this. And that's where you get this idea of waste. There's like this need to get something out of it. Right. And that's not necessarily what it is. And it's not like you permanently need to get something out of it for it to still be successful, even if it ends. I mean, you can have a two-year contract at a job that ends, and you can still do a really successful job with it. Mm-hmm. Right. That yeah. Doesn't mean it was a failure. Like, you know. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, it's treating it's it's a mindset that treats um, personal and emotional relate and sexual relationships as if they were like, I don't know, uh, personal transactional yes. and savings yeah. accounts or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that they have a return on investment right. or uh, interest rate attached to them. If only they did. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's almost like it's a contradiction because it's like stay this way forever, but also grow from it. Right. right. But also don't ever let it change. Right. But also you have to get something out of it. And it's this. But also when you grow, make sure you grow together. Yeah. Instead of growing apart. But don't change. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Keep but it fresh. Yeah. But make sure <laughs> to always be growing. And it's just like, what are, what's, what is really the purpose here? And we see both Benson and Mike struggle with that throughout because yeah. they have conversations with each other where they're like, where is this going? Yeah. They're what kind of constantly, they're kind of constantly trying to figure out their ROI for their relationship right. of what is this? And it feels like they've hit this point where they both know something, they both feel like something has to happen. They both feel like they have to do something, but neither one of them knows what that is. And I always got this feeling from reading them that this was the longest or even the most serious relationship either of them had been in. Yeah. Yeah, So they didn't know anything about how relationships end or what happens next in relationships, but they both have this societal and personal expectation that something has to happen. There's got to be more to it than this in some way. And really, a lot of relationships aren't. Mm-hmm. like that the and that's more a lot that's there. what i really liked about this almost not quite maybe a romance style because so many books about relationships it is the one that changes everything that one that you're happily ever after and this is a book where we have maybe not like i don't know maybe not yeah might not be there and there it's not meant to be like their end all be all or they're the one it's just this and I think that's a lot more realistic as far as dating and relationships. If yes. everybody just dated the one, everybody would just date one time and that'd be the end of it. So right. with most romance novels you have like the the setup, the convenience of relationship, and then like two thirds of the way through the book there's the wrench thrown in the plans for uh-huh. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. This book starts with the wrench. Yep. 
and it goes through that that act of the wrench in a romance novel but we don't get what comes after or what comes before really right or we're fed it in little bits and pieces from benson or mike's perspective as they're remembering yes. before the wrench yeah so so BW. we don't have the we don't have the same kind of resolution that we we can get in like more traditional romance stories um, despite the fact that it it is a it's a relationship novel, um, you know it, it's it's interesting how even without that sense of resolution, I guess the the feeling that I came away with was that there is still something ongoing about this story. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a closed loop, and it almost feels in some way um, like something that Washington could return to maybe not in the form of a sequel, but perhaps in the form of a short story. If he's working on another collection like lot or something, I don't know. Um, every with, with both of his books. Now I've gotten the sense that he is working around a project or working towards a project of telling these really complex um, but often unresolved stories in Houston. And, oh, yeah, and Houston is definitely it. Yeah, him. and sort of like writing within the place and capturing something about not just the like ongoing changing nature of these people and characters as they're navigating their lives, but also something about the way the place itself is changing and has changed, um, you know, as an environment, but also like as a socio uh you know, economic reality and, and so on. So, yeah, I like the idea of thinking about this book as like, <laughs> like a bisected or sliced up uh, romance plot with like certain parts left out. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> that's helpful. Um, I think for, for describing it. So the audiobook has two narrators, two performers, which I knew going into it, I always look at, who the narrator is or who the narrators are sort of I can see what other books they've done. Um, and with this, I knew that there were two performers, but I didn't know how that would manifest because there's so many different ways or reasons for an audiobook to have multiple performers. I've read audiobooks where there were three or four characters with three or four points of view. Um, I've read books where it's sort of written almost like a cast and the way that it's performed. So there's two or three narrators as they're jumping around reading their sections. And so with this, to hear these two narrators as distinct sections of the book, that's something I just got to s that I just got to sort of see unfold as we went through. And it was really fascinating to hear that and to hear the um, choices that each narrator made in telling Ben's and then Mike's sections. So I want to know from you all, how is that reading that? I can share a little bit about this because I, I actually found as I started the novel that I was really struggling initially with Ben's narration. Um, it felt, it felt to me like the way that Washington was writing him was as someone who was incredibly guarded because while it's narrated from his point of view 
there's still so much that is uh, not necessarily being disclosed to to a reader. When we when we moved into Mike's section, it felt like a shift, and it felt like it, it felt like what Mike's narration was often trying to do was find language for his experiences in some way um and so you'll have sections in his narration that will be you know these really long like really long multi-clause sentences broken up by commas you know moments where there where it will feel like we're reading almost diaristic like lists of things about his father in particular and like I say, that gave me the impression of a character who's trying differently to find the, the language to make some sense of his world. And it was so it was interesting. It was interesting to read that and then to go back and think about the, the way that that um, style of narration, not just contrast with how Washington is writing Benson, but also how, how you, you kind of rethink what's going on with Benson and, you know, particularly why he might be as guarded as he is or how, um, he, he chooses and chooses not to, you know, account for his experience. Yeah. He's very protective and we, we see that that is most likely because of his relationship with his family and the way that they treated him when he came out and also the way that they treated him when they found out that he was HIV positive. Right. It was just like a double whammy of just pretending that the problem didn't exist, essentially. Right. And so he's grown to guard all of that so that he doesn't share with anyone. But that is to the detriment sometimes of his relationship with Mike because he doesn't share how he's feeling and he's very elusive in a specific way. Right. And we sort of get this feel that he's even guarded in his own head because these yeah. sections are both from their own points of view. So we're hearing as hearing the world as they're going through it. And it, his section is a lot more, I guess the right phrasing is traditionally organized as far as, say, sentence structure compared to Mike's sections, where Mike's sections are a lot more just rapid stream of consciousness. And Ben's sections are a lot more intentional and focused and so even inside himself ben is very guarded even from himself whereas mike is a lot more free within himself and how he's experiencing the world yeah so there's a degree there's a degree to which benson is as a narrator is interested in controlling and redirecting our attention in and making specific connections between particular scenes but it's less of this it's it's less of a narration that's kind of like projecting forward maybe to find itself and maybe to land somewhere which is often how some of mike's narration can can feel yeah i thought that another another facet of of Washington's choice to divide up this book in this way uh, that that was that was really interesting is um, it it led me to it led me to like a hypothetical place in my own in my own thinking about the book where I wondered what the book would have been like 
if the final section hadn't been present. Um, so the book is organized in three sections. The first one is Benson's. The second one is Mike's. The third one is Benson's. Um, and the third one, again, it, it gives us an ending, uh, uh, despite the fact that the ending is not, um, can, doesn't feel entirely resolved. Uh, but I wondered what the book would have been like without that third section if we had just had the sort of the two sides of this, um, the two sides of this story, and then we came to we came to a natural end um, once we had heard the other side. And then, of course, I was also thinking, oh well, what if these were in different orders? Like, what if Mike's section had come first, and then Benson's section had come after that? Would that have worked? What that what would that have done? to our um, perceptions of the story. So, so yeah, I was thinking, as I often do, about, um, about the larger structure of the story. And so I just wondered, like, I don't know, alongside this discussion about narrative style and uh, narrative structure, I wonder what your respective impressions were of that, like, as you, as you made that shift and kind of moved through the sequence, how it changed your impressions of the book so it for me when i think about like the way that these sections are structured and the order in which they come even though memorial is about mike and benson it really opens and closes with mitsuko's arrival and departure yeah. right. and mm -hmm. from benson's perspective not from mike's because we would get something completely different if it was like bringing your mom home after all these years to bringing a total stranger home that you're going to have to live with and you don't really know and then saying farewell to someone that you've gotten to know and may never see again. So I think that that like I can't imagine the book going any differently simply because of the way that Ben is able to anchor Mitsuko in his life through her arrival and departure whereas we wouldn't see that from mike it would be like her arrival and then his departure immediately right. thereafter and i really liked that because mitsuko is this undercurrent in the entire story she even really in is. mike's whole section where it's all about his dad everything that has brought him to that point with his father is because of mitsuko and the decisions that she has made so then i wonder i wonder what um following your case for the for the end of the novel for that final piece yeah i wonder what the novel would look like from mitsuko's perspective mm. like if we had had oh man if we had <laughs> that that thread or if we had that um as like a single chapter somewhere um in the middle like how would that change it would probably just say the these spot. kids are idiots yeah like <laughs> well yes that would probably be how it starts <laughs> because she's stuck with the her her son is who she's there to see like mm. as much as you can love your significant others you well your parent is there to see you yes the significant your significant other is just a bonus but they're there to see you first right, and at one foremost. point mitsuko even says to mike i made you yeah right and um when she's talking to Benson, she says, I'm happy with what I made. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she treats him as almost, she treats him almost like a dish, but like the dish that she's proudest of that she's ever created. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah, Mitsuko, she's such an interesting character and she drops this bomb. 
Yeah, that's five what, pages before the end of the book. That's why I think her section would be more guarded than yes, Benson's section because there's sure. a lot of decisions that we find out that she made very, very rapidly in a very short amount of time where she was confident in, the, in those decisions and they had long lasting impact. And she was the only one that knew she made these decisions. Yeah. So it turns out that when, while, um, Mike has always been led to believe that his dad abandoned them and left and went back to Japan and left them in Texas. There's before Iju dies, he tells Mike that the plan was always that they were going to follow him back to Japan and they never did. And so he confronts Mitsuko and this is all told through, through Ben's perspective, which is just like, so panicked now. meme <laughs> like which is another thing like, horrified by all of right. this another thing with these two with this relationship between mike and his parents that i really like seeing it from benson's perspective is benson is able to be the stand-in for us as the reader as the outsider yeah. seeing all this happen right and now i feel like everybody has been in the situation where you are hanging out with your friend and your friend's parent and they kind of get into it and you are mm-hmm. trapped. Uh-huh. And I yeah. think th- at yeah. this point, it <laughs> seems that Ben was lit. I, I joke to Jess that it's hard for me to remember the stage direction sometimes. But it feels like Ben was literally trapped in the booth where he's maybe on the inside of the booth. <laughs> yeah, and Mike is on leave. the outside. And Mike's mom is on the other side of this booth on her own side of the booth. With alone, her giant margarita. The size of her head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she wants another one. Which and is Mike tells her she no. She goes through four, which is just like this really comical vision. And then you can feel feel Benson's uncomfort to the point where you also want to like slide down in the booth you can't, until you're on the floor and then crawl out so that you can get to the bathroom and have a meltdown yes, about it. Because he's completely trapped when Mike reveals this truth and he, and it's a bomb maybe to truth. all of us. Maybe yes. truth. And Mitsuko is just said basically says, Yeah, and yeah, and she's like, so let's say I did. And she gets very, like, extremely, like, calculated Disney villain about it. Like, I mm. felt like I was reading, yeah, she's, like, wiggling her fingers, and she just sits there and says, so what if I did? Envision if I did. I would have had to have the confidence to say that we were better off alone in America than together in Japan. <gasps> and she just, like, owns the fact that maybe she did it and why maybe she did it. But she never says that she did it. Yeah. It's just, she's like, it's very much like your father to say something like that and to maybe like try and build a case for his side versus her side. And that's, I mean, that's something that we see a lot with parents and kids who, when the parents break up is that they try and use the kids as some sort of weapon against the Mm -hmm. other, which is a real shame. But we see it even now with a full grown adult being used in this battle between parents when there's only one parent even still alive. Yeah. And it's clear that in in their own in their own ways they meant a lot to each other because Mitsuko is really upset that Aiju has died. Mm-hmm. Um, she's devastated by it, and you know that's that's something that's a the universal thread of grief. Of course, so we're all <laughs> devastated by it. But she, the way that she responds to him is just like had me clutching pearls at the very end. And I was thinking, okay, this is a nice quiet you know, literary fiction novel, but Washington does a great job of, you know, the, the tap is on drip for the, almost the entire book. He turns on full blast for one page and then puts it back to a drip. For yes. The end. I and think that's a perfect description. Great, 
great job of unfolding that and then leaving you because you're kind of you're getting resolution here like Benson and Mike probably aren't going to make it they've both got guys that they've kind of been seeing on the side Mike's about to move back to Japan for at least six months and they're taking Mitsuko to the airport eventually and like you're you're this is unfolding the way that you expect it to unfold and so you're thinking by the end this is going to be a very like you know it's going to be wrapped up generally speaking just enough that you feel satisfied with it but the way that this unfolds this reveal about maybe Mitsuko um handling the her breakup with Aiju differently than Mike ever thought it was um left me thinking way harder about this novel I think than if that hadn't been there yeah and it it, I already know I mean I just finished it yesterday because I wanted it to be real fresh for the podcast and for the event next week but I I know it's going to be something that lingers with me like was she did she do it did she not do it what kind of impact does it have on both of these guys going forward especially Mike yeah, and from a again from a sort of structural um, standpoint, you know, I like to think about the way that stories like stories that are structured like this, how one where where we have these dueling character perspectives, how one section that follows will revise the section that came before. That's yeah. usually the the language that I use, and I feel like um, I feel like the presence of Mitsuko throughout the throughout the book then is kind of the final revision in some way and it's not like a it's not necessarily the final edit it it just simply adds yet another layer of possibility and interpretation and questions um that you might have about about mike's family and and what the what the truth is there that's why i think that he gets so easily unmoored by the idea of a home being a person because he feels that he has to fully understand everything about home or whatever that is for him and there's just no way you can fully understand another person and he has been jerked around so much by by the idea by even like the physical places home right japan houston his dad goes back to japan and then his mom leaves and so like he never really has the opportunity to attach himself to home as a person in the way that he wants there to be and then we sort of maybe feel like, okay, maybe he's realizing his dad could be home and his mom could be home. And then she's like, then this thing is revealed by his dad and he confronts his mom that sort of changes everything he thought about his parents. And his whole life was based on this assumption that he had about his dad. And now everything about him is changing as well as everything ab- about his idea of his parents is changing. Yeah. So I wonder if we could um, kind of move move towards wrapping up our our conversation by um actually maybe going to one of the more obvious places um in discussing the book and that is maybe trying to talk a little bit about the title the fact that it sure. is called <laughs> memorial uh-huh. um here and we're recording a few days before memorial day we are Ooh. in fact yeah um, all of this was planned yeah and if all all things uh, go according to plan this episode will be out on Memorial Day. Oh, snap. Hi, um, guys. Happy Memorial Day. So, uh, <laughs> but now known in America as the beginning of summer. Yeah. Except it's whoop, whoop. hot already here yes. in Spartanburg. <laughs> I yeah, love it. It is. Yeah. 
Um, you know, that's something we don't often do. Where we we haven't we there haven't been many times where we've talked about talk what about the, title the title means. Yeah. And I think even as readers, it's easy for us to either like we read very studiously for this podcast, but we also read just for funsies in a lot of ways in our right. lives. Do we? <laughs> and it's easy for anyone to just sort of not even think about the name of a book. Right. Well, and in general, like it's easy for us as readers to discount the title and other design aspects like the cover and the artwork that may be involved in font choice and all of that kind of stuff. But in particular, the title in this case, Joseph, what do you think it means? I feel like you've got a prevailing theory, semi theory at least. Well, I mean, I, I mostly I just have a lot of, I have a lot of questions and a lot of sort of possible ways of interpreting it. I mean, there's a, there's a geographical place. Um, I think Morial, like a memorial, memorial drive, drive or yeah, like yeah um, is is a place that is referenced in the book. But beyond the geography, you know, I was thinking about the novel possibly as, uh, you know, as a series of memorializations. Um, we have uh, something like a kind of in progress memorial for Iju in the way that Mike will begin different parts of his narrative sections by describing particular scents or uh, flavors or sounds that um, Iju really, really values and loves and experiences that he's enjoyed. And, and all of this is leading up to the narration of his, his death. And so, so there's a kind of in-progress memorial that I felt like was maybe happening there, kind of in-progress eulogy almost. But I think another way we might read it is maybe as a memorial for Ben and Mike's relationship. Yeah, it's That's almost... the way I read it, for sure. Yeah, because right? then it's almost as if... I like the word eulogy to describe it because yeah. they keep referencing back these good and bad times in their relationship. Like, the first time we fought, the first time we kissed, right. the seventh time I said I love you, and things like that. They just keep going back to all these moments that are sort of the... Um, the high moments, and not right. high as in best, but just the most important moments of their relationship. Yeah. Moments of clarity in yeah. some way, yeah. And like significant events within within the larger structure of the event that is the relationship, right? It's this durational thing. It takes a period of time. It has a kind of beginning and it has a kind of ending um, or at least a like, to be continued and maybe be transformed and possibly be picked up again one day. But maybe at that point it's different, yeah. right? Cause the people are different, but, but yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's also that retrospective, there's that real retrospective quality to how Washington writes this relationship as well. Um, where Benson's section, but well, both of the section are, both Benson and Mike as, as narrators are, they use different sorts of flashbacks and memories and to, to restructure the way that they are thinking about their relationship. They're re-narrating this as we're moving chronologically forward in time. And so, yeah, we do get that sense of this kind of like expansive and constantly expanding thing. I'm making expanding motions with my hands <laughs> as I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to describe this. Um, there, but yeah, go ahead. There is a. I actually looked up the Merriam-Webster definition oh of memorial God. because mm. I'm nothing if not a librarian. 
But what's very interesting to me is that as a noun, there are two definitions of memorial. One is something that keeps remembrance alive, such as a monument, of course. Um, but the second is actually a record or memoir. And that's the terminology yeah. that's used. Right. So this is really a record and memoir of their relationship to me. And mm-hmm. it's just like it's this the same documentation that describes their their relationship. And the thing about a record is that it is also not good or bad. It is it's just, just a description of events. Right. Yeah. It's a record. It's a recording. It's a yeah. capture, a captured thing. Um, one of the things that is uh, interesting about the um, sort of typographical and design choices in the book is that there will be moments in the in the book where characters will send each other photographs of yeah, which is a treat. Where, where they are and they're connected to the story in some way and that also lends to that record keeping yeah, documentation documentation uh, dimension where you say well a photograph especially the types that are in this book they're neither good nor bad they're just simply they're snapshots of the time they're capturing something mm-hmm. and and I, the the way that i was thinking about the way that memory and time work in this book is that it almost seems like as we're reading um, and we're moving forward in time, w- that forward motion carries with it some kind of double or echo of the past. And then we move into the past and then we move back into the present. And it's very fluid the way that it's handled. It's not like flashback time. And then it's <laughs> like really dramatically uh, uh, marked off and, you know, uh, and, and so on. But instead it's more like, how we really live in time, how um, how so much of what we do is bound up in our kind of history of what we have done before and our remembrances of um, particular spots and places um, on various scales. And so I felt like that was another, I don't know, that was like another thematic aspect of how how the novel was demonstrating its engagement with the title. Yeah, because I think when you, if you look at this novel as characters reflecting on their relationships and their past and their future together, you when you look at it through that definition of mem- of a memorial, the question of do they get back get together or do they stay together or do they break up that question isn't even a question anymore. Mm. It just becomes this is a documentation of what's happened so far. Right. And so then you sort of get away from that need that we have to have these tidy endings for romances and for life in general of this is what happened and this is the final thing it just says this is a continuing thing and it will go one way and then it could go another way or it could go a completely different way i think that's a great end note and now i'd like to pivot to our readers advisory recommendations our little readers advisory corner so if you yeah if you've read memorial joseph what do you suggest people read next so I have two books that I want to to talk about. One is a one is a novel, um, and the other one is somewhere in the space between a novel and a short story collection. But I want to talk about the novel first. Um, it's a book by Lauren Groff, uh, and it is called Fates and Furies. Um, and like Memorial, it is told from the perspective of two characters, um, although the sections in the, the book are broken up as one is called Fates and the other one is called Furies. And those 
figures, mythological, I guess we could call them, um, uh, accompany the two characters, Lotto and Matilde, um, in a, a sort of atmospheric and very lyrical story of their marriage and its struggles and ultimately collapse. Um, and the the real unique trick of the book is that the the sections revise one another and create again a sort of almost helix-like structure where you you read through the first section which accompanies Lotto and sort of focuses on him um, and then you read through the the second section and it accompanies Matilde and um, it's much darker and much more complex and sort of unsparing and you you realize that what you you had read um, now is subject to serious revision so it's a book that like another book that we've talked about on the show trust exercise does that revision trick very well but uh but it it follows a particular relationship like memorial so the the second book that i want to recommend is uh is a more recent title by garth greenwell called cleanness and um, it's a it's a series of vignettes that follow an unnamed narrator who's an American teacher in Sofia, Bulgaria, um, as he is reflecting on his emotional and sexual relationships and encounters with with uh, different men um, that have shaped his past as he prepares to leave. Um, it's absolutely beautifully written. Um, it's and it's in a sort of first-person narrative style, but it too is incredibly lyrical um, and incredibly candid. It scratches a similar itch as perhaps the mic sections do that I felt like I was getting a little frustrated with in Benson's <laughs> sections, um, where Garth Greenwell's narrator is, again, incredibly introspective, candid, and, and at times incredibly explicit, but again, Wonderfully, wonderfully told um, and a great book to, to check out. Carmenita, what do you have? So I have a book and a movie. My first one is a book, which is actually a memoir that came out just a couple of weeks ago. And it's called Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, also known as Japanese Breakfast and her pop persona. <laughs> and it is a memoir about her growing up in Oregon with a Korean mom and a white American dad, where food was a big part of her life. And when she was in her mid-20s, her mom was diagnosed with cancer, so she took care of her mom. And it goes into some of the similar themes of grief in that respect. But the epitaph for this novel, well, for this memoir, is that every time she shops at the Asian food market grocery chain H Mart, she cries because she thinks of all the times her mom made food for her and how food was a big part of their bonding experiences and food was a big part of how she embraced, rebelled, and embraced against her Korean-American culture. So that's a perfect one for anyone who really liked these themes of food and grief and memory that we had throughout Memorial. And then my second is a movie that fits into a category that I like to call the anti-rom-com <laughs> which is kind of what Memorial seems to do at some points. And so this movie is The Breakup. It came out in 2006, and it stars Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn as this couple living together in a kind of lavish Zhizhi apartment in Chicago. They're truly America's sweethearts, <laughs> these two. Yes. Mm. 
Um, they break up. They have this big dramatic breakup that happens as they're starting to realize they're a couple of years into their relationship and they're realizing maybe this isn't working out anymore and they want to break up. But they can't afford to break the lease on their apartment and neither of them can afford to live in the apartment alone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so they've agreed to live in the apartment together, but not not together <laughs> until the lease ends. But because they're both still very much in love with each other and still mourning their relationship, they do all of these chaotic, awful things to each other as they're trying to, like, goad the other into leaving while also tricking the other into staying. So it's this wild um, relationship, back and forth, whiplash that you get from watching this movie that has tons of the comedic elements that we love from a rom-com while also having a lot of the sad relationship ending things. And um, spoiler alert, it is a lot clearer in the end of that. And they don't get back together. They kind of just move on in a way that we don't really have a see th in the ending of Memorial where we don't know with the breakup. We 100% know what happens <laughs> with them. <laughs> has a nice little epilogue. But um, it's another great way to explore the idea of maybe you don't need to be with someone forever. And maybe that's okay. Kay. So Jess, what do you have? I just have one, but it's one that I really, really, really highly recommend if you enjoyed the multiple character perspective of a memorial, if you like the own voices perspective, since Brian is a, a black gay man living in Texas, as is Benson, if you enjoyed the fact that Houston is its own character in both memorial and in lot, and I recommend you listen to our podcast episode too about lot and sports as hell because they're very interesting in tandem together. Um, but if you liked the fact that Houston was its own character and you liked this this own voices con aspect of the reading and you really like the multiple character perspective, you really need to read There There by Tommy Orange, which is about 12 different people. So there are a lot of narrators in this story, but they are 12 different American Indian characters living in and around Oakland, California, and everything in this story leads up to the big Oakland powwow, and we get characters who are young kids who are going to a powwow for the first time, older parents and grandparents, people who you don't realize are related in certain ways, and um, a lot of it has that same dynamic of the patrons in the bar and in Osaka and it feels very kind of chaotic in some places but very crystal clear who these people are and others and it all tumbles toward this really spectacular and deeply traumatic and unexpected uh ending just like Memorial does where you can kind of you see something coming but you also expect that it's going to be a certain way and it's not um and I highly highly recommend it it's a great book great perspective we'll probably do it here on the podcast at some point we did it for the book club and we had a really great conversation around it and um tommy orange is a really fantastic voice in american indian writing right now there aren't a lot of american indian writers we're getting more thankfully we're getting more of their stories but it's also rare to see american indian stories that aren't like sad indian on the reservation basically and Tommy Orange is trying to expand that in the same way that Brian Washington is trying to expand stories of gay life that aren't just like a coming out story 
and I, I mean it's fantastic I love it the two of them together are a really interesting pair thanks for listening to this episode of the book lovers podcast to learn more about summer reading and our virtual event with Brian Washington or to place a hold on memorial head to spartanburglibraries.org for more information about the titles discussed on this episode other episodes or to learn about the hosts check out our website bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. 